Father God, it's awesome to come here and to dig into your word, dig into this book, uh, find out more about your plan, see what you have to unfold uh, in front of us. And uh, God, we just ask that you would come here tonight, be in our presence. Um, we want to feel your spirit. We want to hear your words uh, and know you better. And we just pray that this experience and this study will bring us closer to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in chapter 11. Um, we have just seen the seventh seal opened on the scroll. And the seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments. And last week we went through six of the trumpet judgments. Uh, and then there's a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet uh, where you got a glimpse of an angel, uh, likely Michael, standing uh, on, on land and on the sea with his hand pointed to heaven with the scroll and his hand open, claiming the earth as the Lord's. And that was where we left off. We have yet to see the seventh trumpet judgment. Um, we will see tonight the trumpet judgment get mentioned, the seventh trumpet judgment, judgment get mentioned, but we won't see the results of that for a few more chapters. The bull judgments or vile judgments that get poured out, which are what is contained within the seventh trumpet, shows up in Revelation 16. So it might be a week or two before we get there, um, but you will see it mentioned today, so we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but the first topic, in this pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just like the pause between the sixth and the seventh seal on the scroll, you'll notice that it gives us a glimpse of what's actually happening on earth. So it takes a pause from what the judgments contain and what God is doing to rain down his judgment from opening the scrolls and blowing the trumpets, uh, and gives us a glimpse of what's actually happening on earth during this seven-year time period. So we start to see the history unfold that leads to the seventh trumpet judgment. And that's where we pick up in chapter 11. So it says, Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, or three and a half years, which we'll see a lot of that time frame, three and a half years today. The interesting thing about this is John is given a tool to measure the temple. Um, that, to me, isn't quite as interesting as the fact that he's told not to measure the outer courts because the outer courts are given over to the Gentiles. I find that very interesting because the Temple Mount right now, even though in very recent years Jerusalem has been not only captured by the Israelites after the Seven-Day War, but just as recent as a year or two ago, the world recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved, the U.S. Embassy was actually moved into Jerusalem. 
However, the Temple Mount is still controlled, not by Israel. So it's still controlled by the Arab nations surrounding Israel, and they don't have rights to the Temple Mount to build the temple. Um, So I just find that very interesting that this prophecy from John in 90 to 95 AD points out that the courts, the outer courts of the temple, uh, will be handed over and controlled by the Gentiles. And we literally see that today. The outer, the Temple Mount is controlled by the Arab nations, even though the city of Jerusalem is under control of Israel. So that's a very interesting thing. Uh, and just gives me a little bit more confidence in who God is and how he can call things out from the future. Uh, but moving on, I will give power to my two witnesses. These, this is the rest of what chapter 11 is about, the two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, and 1,260 days is also three and a half years. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, all the same time frame. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These, meaning the two witnesses, have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So at some point during the tribulation period, many think, and my reading of this, which I'll get into a little bit, is that it's probably during the first three and a half years. The two witnesses show up, and they help create a revival among the Jewish people and among the earth. And their ministry they're like unstoppable. Fire comes out of their mouth. They're able to call down fire from heaven. They're able to cause drought, plagues, and turn the waters into blood. And so who are these two guys? And that's what we want to kind of discover. So I'll give you a couple of possibilities um, that certain commentators have mentioned, and then ultimately what I think. There is thought of maybe this is James and John, the sons of thunder, the two disciples, there are a possibility of Enoch and Elijah. Enoch from chapter 5 of Genesis and Hebrews 11 never died. He was taken up into heaven, um, just like Elijah was in 1 Kings, taken up into heaven, never died. And so since these two guys have never experienced physical death, maybe it's them that still have a ministry related to the earth. That's actually what I used to think. And Enoch himself also talked a lot about the end days. He's quoted in Jude talking about end times and the thousands upon thousands of saints coming when Jesus returns. He proclaimed the flood when he named his son Methuselah and predicted the date of the flood because the year that his son Methuselah died was the year that the flood started. Um, So there's a lot of judgment surrounding Enoch's ministry and what he had prophesied in his life. And so potentially Enoch and Elijah. Uh, Some say it's Elijah and one of the other prophets like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. 
or even maybe John the Baptist. Now, my thought is that it's probably, and this is the most common thought, is that it's probably Moses and Elijah. The reason for this, Elijah's almost universally agreed upon because in Matthew 17, Jesus states that Elijah will come prior to his return in uh, Matthew 17, 11. But the real thing that connects you to Elijah and Moses is also in Matthew 17, um, Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 9 is the transfiguration of Jesus. He's standing on the mountain and he brings Peter, James, and John along with him and suddenly Elijah and Moses appear. And then they see Jesus in his glorified state along with Elijah and Moses who represent both the law and the prophet. Moses is the law giver. He represents the law. Elijah is like the prophet of the prophets. And so he represents the prophets. And Elijah is prophesied to come before the Messiah. So it makes sense for Elijah to be there. But if you also break down the things that the two witnesses are going to do, they're going to be able to, you know, call down fire from the heavens and shoot fire from their mouth. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 was able to call down fire on an altar from heaven as he was challenging the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah also called on a drought for three years and he shut the heavens, which is another one of the things that these two witnesses are supposed to do. So not only was Elijah predicted by Jesus, he is predicted in the Old Testament to come before the Messiah, and the powers associated with the two witnesses also line up with Elijah, and he was there at the transfiguration. Now Moses was also at the transfiguration and also contains in his story a lot of the powers that the two witnesses seem to have. Exodus chapters 7 through 11 are the ten plagues that get poured out on Egypt during Moses' ministry during the Exodus. And so these two witnesses are supposed to be able to call down plagues at any time they want to, as well as turn the waters into blood, which is the first plague in Egypt that Moses and Aaron uh, put together. So the transfiguration plus the abilities of these two witnesses really make it seem like Moses and Elijah are the two guys. Now, Elijah, of course, never died. Um, so there's the easy argument to be made for Elijah. But in the book of Jude you also see Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body. And why? What is the importance of that? What is Satan trying to stop? Because the resurrection had already happened, the ascension had already happened when Jude is writing this. And so you see Michael, the archangel, and Satan fighting over the body of Moses. What on earth are they fighting for? Why? And a there's a lot of speculation that it's because Moses will return as one of the two witnesses. Um, there's also just a view out there, which I really like. Pastor John MacArthur said this. I have no idea who these two guys are. It's possible that it's Moses and Elijah, but it could also be anybody. And if it could be anybody, let me give God my application now. Because if I could shoot fire from my mouth and stop people who are trying to stop God's word from getting sent out, um, I'll take that job. I think that's pretty funny. And uh, I agree with him. So that's another possibility. It could be 
just anybody who comes in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, much like John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming Christ. Another thing to connect is that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And that is a picture from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3. So what is happening is the exile of to Babylon is over. The Jews have been allowed to leave Babylon um, during the Medo-Persian Empire and they have been allowed to go back into their land to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is the one who's rebuilding the temple, and Joshua is the high priest who's going to help with the sacrifices. You see these. You see this happen in the book of Ezra, and you see this announced in Zechariah chapter 4. And so in this vision, you see two olive trees that have pipes leading to a lampstand. And they're constantly feeding the oil to the lampstand. And so the when prophecy, especially in Old Testament prophecy, you're looking at a pattern, right? This thing happens in real time and also predicts a future event. And so these two lampstands, or these two olive trees that are feeding the lampstand, are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is leading a revival among the people of Israel to start following, to repent and start following their God again and rebuild the temple so they can get back into their worship and get connected back with God again and be clean. At the same time, Joshua, the high priest, is the one who is leading and doing the sacrifices and creating the opportunity to be connected with God again, which is also very interesting because it's another person named Yeshua. Jesus, the high priest, is again the instrument to connect the people to God. And so this happens in the time of Ezra, but John is saying that was a partial fulfillment. The complete fulfillment is the revival that happens during the tribulation period by these two witnesses who bring about a revival. And you saw earlier in Revelation, there's a multitude of people you can't even count that get saved during the tribulation period. Much to do probably with the, the ministry of the two witnesses as well as the 144,000 that are sealed by God. That's a picture that we see partially fulfilled in Zechariah and in Ezra with Zerubbabel and Joshua that is completely fulfilled in the future through likely Moses and Elijah. Now, after their time as they're doing their ministry on earth, it says this in verse 7, when they finished their testimony, the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit and will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, which are the two cities that had probably the most destructive consequences from God's judgment, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So 
three and a half years into their ministry, the beast comes and rises out of the pit and kills them, finally destroying their ministry. Everybody who hates their ministry on the whole planet is rejoicing over the fact that these two men are dead, and they're dead for three and a half days, and they don't bury them because of the celebration they're going to have. And then everybody sees them resurrected and ascended into heaven. Um, So I can just imagine the jaws dropping when that happens and realizing that God is still more powerful. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice coming from heaven um, saying to them, Come up here, which is the same phrase God used to send John up to heaven in chapter 4. Um, so very much a picture being raptured up into heaven. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. And so this time period looks like you're entering right into the final trumpet judgment because the second woe is past, and the second woe is the sixth trumpet judgment. So now you get a glimpse of the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And in a lot of translations, they don't add and who is to come because some Greek manuscripts don't contain that phrase, likely because the second coming is so close at this point that who is to come isn't really relevant. Because you have taken your great power and reigned, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, they should be judged and that you should reward your servants and prophets and saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunder, earthquake, and a great hail. So the seventh trumpet is blown. The world now knows that it's really close for the return. There's praise by the 24 elders or the church in heaven. And we know that the time is near. But the nations are angry, and so is the beast, and they wage war. So this is the nation's in their final attempt, in their final rebellion, saying, I refuse to follow and bend the knee to God. I refuse to bow to Jesus, and they try to fight with Christ. And the end result you will see in Revelation 19, it's not pretty, it's beautiful, but for those who have chosen to wage war against him, it's not pretty. And so that is chapter 11, Moving in now to chapter 12, which is titled The Woman, the Child, and the Dragon, uh, which will all make sense in a few minutes. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. 
Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So there's a, there's a woman and there's the sun and the moon and 12 stars. And so who is this? What on earth does this mean? Well, if we look back and we allow scripture to tell us what this is instead of making assumptions um, based on imagery, you find almost identical imagery in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph has a dream where the sun, the moon, and the 12 and 11 stars bow down to him, and he would be the 12th star. And so the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars are the nation of Israel and his mother and father. And so the woman is Israel, and the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of the 12 stars, this woman will give birth to a child. And so that's what we're seeing here. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars and threw them before the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So a whole lot of history was unveiled very quickly. So the red, the big fiery red dragon is Lucifer, and he casts out with him a third of the stars in heaven, meaning a third of the angels follow him and fall. This is them getting finally booted out of heaven forever, which is a remnant of the fifth trumpet judgment that we talked about last week when Satan gets cast out and the star falls from heaven. So Satan is cast out of heaven. He takes a third of his angels with him. And now we see some history that has led up to this ultimate judgment. So Israel, the woman who is surrounded by the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, the 12 stars being the nation of the tribes of Israel, the woman being Israel itself, gives birth to a male child. And this male child is set to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. So now we know that this child must be from the tribe of Judah because the scepter is not supposed to leave the tribe of Judah from Genesis 49. So this is Jesus is the child. And as soon as this child was born, the dragon tried to kill him. What does this sound like? It sounds like Matthew chapter 2, Herod the Great, wanted to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem to prevent this coming king from ever taking or usurping his throne. So you have this vivid imagery, but when you look back at the scriptures, it suddenly, it really, it makes sense. It becomes very clear. Israel, the Messiah will come out of Israel from the tribe of Judah. And as soon as he's born, he was tried, they tried to kill him. Herod tried to kill him. But he didn't die. And it says, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So this also is remnant of Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven to his rightful place. And that is where he is until he returns. So then, and now we're in the tribulation period. So John is skipping a whole lot of time. He goes from Jesus' birth and tells nothing else, goes to his ascension, 
and now we're in the tribulation period, so he's skipping massive swaths of time. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should be fed there 1,260 days. So again, three and a half years. At some point, likely the very middle point of the tribulation period, and we'll get into more detail in that in the next couple of chapters, there's an event. It's called the abomination of desolation. And this gives the Jews the understanding that they need to get out of town. They need to get out of Dodge. And so they flee to the wilderness where they're protected for the second half of the tribulation period. Now, there's a lot of reasons, um, which we'll get into in the near future, about why people think this place in the wilderness is the rock city of Petra in Jordan. One of the reasons, as we break down in the coming chapters, is that Jordan seems to be a place that the Antichrist doesn't have control over. And it's one of the very few places on the entire world um, that he doesn't seem to be able to get into. And Petra is also just this weird natural defense system. Uh, if you haven't seen or know anything about the city of Petra, watch um, the third Indiana Jones movie. It takes place there, and it you actually get a good view of what Petra looks like. And uh, But the Holy Grail story is not really a thing. But the city of Petra is pretty cool, and you actually get to see pieces of it. And it's an engineering marvel. But anyway, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser and our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So at this moment, it looks like during that, ha that halfway point that kicks off the great tribulation, Satan is cast out probably at that fifth trumpet judgment, and he is now confined to earth. And you can tell from Job chapter 1 and 2 that before this point, even though Satan fell, he had access to the throne room of God, but now he is kicked out permanently and he is confined only to the earth. And because of that, he knows he has a short time, three and a half years. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman. So he persecuted Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman, or Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of a serpent. So a time, times, and half a time is also referenced to three and a half years. Time is a year. The word times in its original language is a duality, not a plural, meaning two. So a year, two years, and half a year time, times, and half a time. And you see that referenced in Daniel 7, which 
we will break down in a little bit. So a time times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And this is likely uh, either some sort of army, natural, um, that the Antichrist is controlling humans, or some sort of supernatural army, but likely natural, uh, coming after the Israelites. But potentially maybe an earthquake or something causes these people to just get swallowed up by the earth. Um, and in that... Uh, they miss out on their chance to attack Israel. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, or Israel, and went to make that war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So because the dragon, or Lucifer, fails at persecuting and destroying Israel while they're in the wilderness, he then takes it out on anyone who follows Christ. So that great multitude of saints that we saw earlier, who we see get killed in their, their clothes or their clothes with white later on because they're covered by the blood of the Lamb, that great multitude of people that you can't even count uh, during the tribulation period, the tribulation saints, those who come to Christ from the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000, the Gentiles outside of the wilderness, um, not protected by the wilderness because they're not of the nation of Israel, they get hunted down by the Antichrist and by the dragon during this time period. And so when I was looking at all of this, I thought, gosh, how do I put all this together? How do we look at this in a different way? And I thought, well, I got to explain the beast and who he is. I got to explain the time, times, and half a time. Um, have to explain some of this, so I thought let's take a look at a couple of chapters in the book of Daniel. Okay, so Daniel chapter 2, I'm not going to open it up, I'm just going to give you the overview of Daniel chapter 2, uh, but I would recommend if you haven't read it, read it. And then we're going to talk about Daniel 7. So Daniel chapter 2, this is what happens. Now, this is during the exile. So the Israelites have been forced since 605 BC. Daniel uh, was sieged out of Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and his buddies back to Babylon with him, and Daniel served in the court of the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was just a, just a rude, evil dude, um, he has a dream, and he, it freaked him out. Whatever this dream was, it freaked him out. It messed him up. He wanted to understand it, and he couldn't, but it it made him sweat. He wanted to know what this was. And so he called all of his astrologers and magicians and wise men in his court, and he said, tell me what my dream was. And so they said, well, okay, you tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. And Nebuchadnezzar basically says, no, if you're good at your job, you'll know what the dream was, and you'll tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Um, and they say, king. Nobody can do what you are asking. Nobody can tell you a dream that you had and then interpret it for you without you telling us what the dream was. And so he gets angry and he threatens to kill all of his wise men. And Daniel finds out about this and he comes forward and he says, hold on. 
I think my God can do this. And so he goes before the king. Before he goes before the king, him and his three buddies, they're praying for God to reveal this to him. And so he then goes before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, God has revealed to me your dream. And I'm going to tell you what it is and what it means. And so Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue. And the statue was probably strong and rigid, standing firm like a warrior. That would make sense for Babylonian art. And it was made of four different metals. And so the head was made of gold. And then the chest and arms were made of silver. And then the abdomen and the thighs were made of bronze. And then the legs, were the rest of the leg below the knee, were made of iron. But then the feet were made of iron, and the toes were made of iron and partly clay. So there's ten toes made with iron and partly clay. And so Daniel says, that's your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, yes. What does it mean? And Daniel says, this is what it means. The four metals represent four different kingdoms. So the head of gold is you. It's Babylon. It's the strength of Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar. And then coming after you, there will be kingdoms that replace you. So the arms and in, in chest of silver are future kingdoms. Now, we get a glimpse of that further on in Daniel, so we can break this down and understand who they are. The chest and arms of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire. They came and they conquered Babylon. And they conquered Babylon and existed basically from 539 B.C. to 331. And then following that, the abdomen and the thighs of bronze is the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great himself reigned from 336 B.C. and conquered everything uh, within a 13-year time period uh, in 323 B.C., uh, and then he he died, basically. Of We'll get into that in a second. Alexander the Great was a weird guy. He had incredible ambition, um, and he conquered everything so lightning quick that he, he became uh, depressed and was drinking a lot and got really depressed because he basically had nothing left to do. He, he did everything by 33 years old that he ever wanted to accomplish. Uh, and then when he died, his kingdom got split up into four different generals. And then there's the, the legs of iron, and that is likely the Roman Empire. But then you have this weird piece at the bottom where there is feet made of iron, but then the, where it connects with the toes, it's mixed with iron and clay, so it's weak, uh, and there's ten toes. And so you take that and these kingdoms, and then you connect it to a vision Daniel has in chapter 7. And Daniel has a vision of four kings. And so he sees them as animals. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, he sees a lion with a pair of eagle's wings, but then the eagle's wings are plucked and taken away from him. Uh, and then the lion stands like a man and is given the heart of a man. And so what is that? Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar. 
The lion was represented heavily in Babylonian art. It was represented in the Ishtar Gate and the palace. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar himself was called a lion by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 4 and Ezekiel in chapter 17, um, who also were contemporaries of the time that Nebuchadnezzar was alive. So, But this is Nebuchadnezzar's story. Nebuchadnezzar is this lion with eagle's wings, and the eagle's wings are majesty and power and dominance. But the wings are plucked from him, and he's crawling around like an animal. Now, Nebuchadnezzar actually was this incredibly powerful king who went insane during the ministry of Daniel for seven years, and he crawled around like a wild beast. And then he regained his sanity and recognized that he should not try to put himself above God. And he started to worship God and bow down to the God of Daniel. Um, which is, you know, if you look at past chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar actually creates a statue of himself made purely of gold, um, defying God's prophecy that his kingdom will reign forever. Look at what I've done. I've created this great Babylon. And then he's humbled by God. His wings are plucked, and then he regains sanity in the heart of a man. So this is very clear um, what is happening there. Now, it's not necessarily prophecy because Daniel lived with Nebuchadnezzar. He lived in his court, so he's just telling a story. But it gives us insight into how to interpret the rest of what he's writing. So the next animal is a bear, and it's raised up on one side, and it has three ribs in its mouth. What is this? Well, the next kingdom after Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire, right? The chest and arms of silver. But this is four kings, not four kingdoms. So who does this represent? Who is this bear? Well, Cyrus the Great took over the empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. So initially in the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes had more power than the Persians. The Persians were almost subservient to the Medes. But when Cyrus the Great took power, he actually raised up the Persians as the more powerful people in the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Medes became subservient. So he raised up one side of the empire, just like the bear was raised up on one side. And during Cyrus's the Great reign, they conquered three major nations, and there's a three ribs in the bear's mouth. And so the three nations they conquered were Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt that contained the mass of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, it's also interesting that the bear was what they chose because the way that the Persians fought was they would just send a gigantic army and they would just overwhelm you with numbers. They didn't move swiftly. They just moved slowly and big, and they were just this lumbering, huge army that you could not compete with because of just sheer numbers, um, which a bear and its big power and size is sort of representative of that Persian army. And then the next animal is a leopard with four wings. Now, eagle's wings not wasn't named specific. It was just wings. That represents speed. And this, and this leopard has four heads. And so, who is this leopard? Alexander the Great. Because Greece, the empire of Greece was conquered within 13 years. It was swift and quick. And then after Alexander the Great's death, 
his empire was broken up into four separate areas and given to four generals underneath Alexander the Great. And so you see this very quick animal with four wings and then given four heads, which after Alexander the Great, four generals took over his empire. That's the third one. And then the fourth beast is this beast that's unlike any other. It's not even given an animal's name. Daniel just calls it a beast. And he says it has these sharp iron teeth. And so you see that metal represented again from Daniel chapter 2. Iron, this strong, unbending metal. So what's interesting is the metals from Daniel chapter 2, they decrease in value, but they increase in strength. And iron is the strongest one. He's got this, this beast has these iron teeth that just crush and destroy everything. But the beast has ten horns, which is what we saw of the dragon in chapter 12. Ten horns. But then it points us to the king. So this is Rome, right? The beast is Rome. That's the kingdom, just like the legs of iron. But the king that this is referring to is still a future prophecy. Because in Daniel chapter 7, out of those ten horns, he sees another little horn rise up out of that kingdom. And that little horn is the Antichrist. This person who in, takes over during the tribulation period. He's the little horn. And so I want to piece all of this together for you. Because history and prophecy gives us a vision of the future. And this is what John is doing for us. He's giving us a picture of the future. And a lot of it is based on what's happened in the past. So in the past, they were the Jews were exiled into Babylon for 70 years. But as the 70 years were coming to an end, Zechariah is risen, is risen up as a prophet. And he prophesies that there will be these two olive trees feeding the lampstand. And those two olive trees happen to be in the near future, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they bring about a revival to the nation of Israel and they rebuild the temple. And this is during the Medo-Persian Empire. But then the next empire comes along, Greece. And after Alexander the Great's death, it's broken up into four different generals. And one of them, the family, the Antiochus family, takes control of the area of the Greek Empire that contains within it Israel. And a few generations down the road, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, enters the temple of the area in which he controls, Zerubbabel's temple. He sets up a statue in the temple of Zeus, but he makes the temple or the statue match Antiochus IV's face. So he's, putting him, he's setting himself up as a god in the temple of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And then he slaughters a pig and the temple, which is as bad as it gets in Judaism. And he claims himself God and forces them to worship him. 
And now there's a revolt. The Maccabean revolt jumps up out of that, and they actually they retake the temple. Um, and then when they rededicate the temple, that's the story of Hanukkah. So you have these two lights who bring about a revival, and then short, well, years after that, you have this character who represents very much what Daniel and Revelation talk about in terms of the Antichrist. So there's the historical picture. And now in Revelation, you have this picture of the, which John calls the two olive trees, the two witnesses, during the tribulation period, causing a stir and a revival among the earth and among the nation of Israel. And three and a half years later, these two men, they die and are resurrected and ascend into heaven in front of the whole earth. Also at that same point at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist, as you'll see in the coming chapters in Revelation, sets up, the, the false prophet sets up an idol in the temple of the first beast, of the Antichrist, and causes them to worship him. And at that moment, the Jews flee into the wilderness. So you have a historical picture that's a partial fulfillment of what is going to happen in the future. I want to check the time here. Oh, goodness, we are running out of time. There's a whole lot more that I would like to get to um, and uncover, but we just don't have time. So, unfortunately, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll have a little chat. So, Father God, thank you again for this opportunity to come together and to open up your word and understand your people's history. God, I hope that today brought light to you, your people's history, and your ultimate plan for the earth and for your nation of Israel. God, we ask that we can pray fervently for your will to be done and your kingdom to come. And God, we know that when John ate the scroll, it was sweet on his lips because the ultimate redemption and the coming of Jesus will be glorious. But let us stand in reverence of what has to happen for that to come. And let us feel the bitterness in our stomach as we know there will be people who do not accept you. God, help us do our best to make that number as small as possible and to bring as many into your kingdom as we can. In Jesus' name, amen.